a new hauling. Just look at the load I'm hauling. Hard work, I hit it harder. Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer. Sun up to sundown, backing up traffic all the way to town. Camo hat and a farmer's tan. Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Welcome to another episode of Fast Line Fast Track. We're glad you're here. On this episode, we'll talk with R.J. Carney, the Director of Congressional Relations for the American Farm Bureau Federation, about the organization's efforts to lobby Congress for expanded rural broadband. We'll also talk with antiques and collectibles dealer Joe Poe about the red-hot farm collectibles market. And then we'll have a real treat from the legendary Ernest Tubb Record Shop in Nashville. It's the future of country music, the Bennett Hall Band. You won't want to miss a moment of it. Let's go. My first guest this week on Fast Line Fast Track is R.J. Carney, the Director of Congressional Relations for the American Farm Bureau Federation. And R.J., welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Excited to be here today. Thank you very much. So the American Farm Bureau Federation has been very active in recent weeks on Capitol Hill trying to push the ball forward on the issue of rural broadband connectivity. Uh, It's a huge issue in many farming communities nationwide. As uh, an estimated 26.4% of rural Americans, more than a quarter of Americans, still lack access access to broadband internet service, and that's opposed to just 1.7% of urban Americans. And as the Internet of Things continues to expand and farmers and ranchers need connectivity for cloud-connected planters, irrigators, tractors, harvesters, and other applications, RJ Fast, reliable broadband service is a must. It is. you know, uh, And the simplest way to summarize um, really everything that you were just uh, greatly uh, laying out there is broadband is no longer a luxury. It is a necessity. And uh, whether it be a fixed connection, um, mobile connection, broadband is essential for modern agriculture. Uh, the farmers and ranchers who grow, the, grow and produce our food, clothing, and fuel, but also it's uh, critical for the quality of life for rural America. So it's, it cuts across the entire spectrum. Um, and as I said, it's it's a necessity for here and now. Mm-hmm. So this new internet-connected equipment, a lot of it allows users to do things such as apply less water to fields, protect soil health, and precisely plant seeds. So really, it's promoting sustainability and can cut down on input costs, which is huge for producers these days. It really is. Uh, whether it be uh, the economic value, um, whether it be which would be the reduction of, of input costs for the farmer, uh, and to the sustainability aspect uh, with uh, what, really what you want to do with variable rate technology. It's going to be this technology that's going to allow producers to put more fertilizer in their most productive areas, uh, but then also when they get to, as they're going across their fields through data mapping and precision uh, agriculture technologies, they're also able to um, put less uh, fertilizer on areas that will produce uh, lower yields. So really, there's a great um, symbiotic relationship there of trying to tie together uh, productivity, but also uh, sustainability from an environmental front. Mm-hmm. And, and as things such as drones become more widely used and uh, GPS-enabled uh, auto steer systems on these vehicles, it's just a must that, that, that this thing moves forward. When, and the, the technology is continuing to unfold, just like we see uh, new technology come out on a, on a regular basis. Farming and ranching has changed. Uh, it used to be 
with regards to uh, data management, a farmer would walk out and take soil samples. Uh, they would work closely with an agronomist. Uh, now what they're able to do is use drones for uh, mapping uh, what, their, what, what their fields and their boundaries are going to uh, be able to look like in terms of optimizing yields. Um, there's also a lot of needs for irrigation pivots that you can uh, handle remotely, um, get notifications if, if one is not working properly, uh, which will help with management of your water costs. Uh, additionally, when we're talking about livestock, uh, you know, a lot of folks who are thinking precision agriculture would just think about row crops, the commodities, uh, your, your traditionals of corn, wheat, soy, soybeans. But with regards to livestock, there's a lot of monitoring that takes place uh, through dairy management systems and also monitoring the health of calves. The technology, the reliance, and the data that is produced by farmers today uh, is getting into the trillions of gigabits. Mm-hmm. And it's so big, the Farm Bureau study shows that an improvement in rural broadband connectivity could lead to a $64.5 billion, with a B, dollar boost in the ag economy. That is, that's exactly correct. Uh, you know, there's, there's a case for rural broadband. And uh, one question I get a lot is, well, why should someone um, in urban America, suburban America, care about connectivity in rural America? Well, it really comes down to that productivity that this is not empty space when we're talking about economic values uh, with regards to corn fields, uh, wheat fields, and soybean fields. There is an economic driver there. Uh, And with regards to row crops, uh, USDA estimates that connected technologies and row crops could result in $13.1 billion in gross benefit annually uh, for precision agriculture. If we're looking at the livestock and dairy sector, uh, there could be potential gross benefits totaling $20.6 billion. And, and we'll break it down one more time with regards to specialty crops. Uh, specialty crops, there's an estimated $13.3 billion uh, to, in with regards to the benefits of the next generation of precision agriculture. So across the board, uh, broadband is, is a valuable portion of the business model for modern agriculture. Farmers are relying on data today more than they ever have, and they need to have connectivity where their business is taking place, and that's out in the croplands and on the ranch lands. So, RJ, one of the reasons that lawmakers and utilities have been kind of hesitant to push for this expansion is that they're working off of old information, it seems. Uh, data maps that uh, measure rural broadband are not specific enough and do not accurately reflect uh, the current state of rural broadband connectivity. And a lot of that, it seems like, has to do with the way the census counts broadband users in blocks and kind of paints uh, the whole area with a broad brush. That's exactly correct. So when uh, in the opening, when you... Uh, mentioned that 26.7% of rural Americans don't have access and 1.7% uh, urban Americans don't have access. There's a, a significant, uh, there's an asterisk that must be used for that. And the reason for that is the Federal Communications Commission, the way they currently um, figure out who has broadband is they use census tracts. And census tracts in rural America are disproportionately larger than a more densely populated urban centers. So if one entity, if one household, if one hospital, if one um, farm in rural America within a census tract is said to have coverage by an Internet service provider, then that entire census block, according to the FCC, is 100% covered, even though it's just one entity. As I said, they're 
in rural America, census tracts are disproportionately larger. Uh, there's more than 3,200 census blocks across the country that are larger than the District of Columbia. Uh, and there's also uh, five census tracts that are larger than the state of Connecticut. So we're talking a vast amount of land uh, that is really disproportionate with how the federal money is being allocated. Um, I've seen estimates that there's about a to fully address um, fiber connections to all of rural America that currently doesn't have access. The cost could be between 45 and $65 billion. Well, I don't foresee in the near term Congress or an administration coming forth and putting 45 and $65 billion worth of connecting fiber all across America. So we need to be very targeted and accurate with where that money is, is allocated. And in order to do so, we need to have a baseline. And that baseline right now is faulty data. And so we need to really correct that. And we've been working at the American Farm Bureau, along with many other industries, uh, to focus with, and work with members of Congress and the administration to tailor and get more accurate, granular, transparent maps that would provide uh, a lot more benefit for this limited amount of funding to address a overabundance of need. So when you start to lay out this case in front of lawmakers, do you feel like they get it? Are, are they starting to, to see the big picture here? They certainly are. Uh, earlier this year, uh, in the Senate Commerce Committee, uh, Chairman Wicker from Mississippi held a hearing that addressed the specific needs of uh, accurate mapping. And we are lucky enough to have the Mississippi Farm Bureau president, uh, Mike McCormick, testified before the Senate Commerce Committee. And the entire committee, on a bipartisan basis, was fully supportive and agreed that these maps are inaccurate and they're faulty. Uh, earlier this year, I know Sec uh, USDA Secretary Perdue, uh, and while he was addressing Congress, and I'm sorry, I forget which before which committee, but he said that FCC's broadband data maps are fake news. So whether it be members of Congress on a bipartisan basis, whether it be within the administration, um, this, this is definitely carrying weight. And we're starting to see that FCC, uh, the commissioners, are also beginning to come around to the idea that this must be corrected. And I think we're getting a lot of momentum building to see some type of either legislative or administrative fix. Uh, for addressing the needs of broadband maps. Now, uh, while the federal government probably doesn't have the 40 to $60 million that you had referenced earlier to, to do a kind of a, a mass fiber rollout, uh, there was money allocated in the 2018 Farm Bill for the expansion of rural broadband. But as folks who, who follow uh, government know, that, you know, nothing happens overnight even after, uh, after signatures are, are on, a, on a bill. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of input. And uh, this thing will probably be talked to death before uh, there's any crews out anywhere uh, rolling out cabling or, or doing the things to, to get folks connected. But one of the things that is being done right now is, uh, as was called for in the 2018 Farm Bill, uh, the formation of a Precision Ag Communications Task Force. Yes. And this Precision Agricultural Task Force uh, is, is something that, American Farm Bureau uh, was uh, asking for um, and, and helped spearhead the idea along with a coalition that AFBF uh, belongs to called the Agricultural Broadband Coalition, uh, which is made up of other commodity 
groups or uh, equipment manufacturers. So there is what this task force is going to do is bring together the Federal Communications Commission. It's going to bring together U.S. Department of Agriculture and third-party stakeholders. And it's going to form a 15-member voting task force that will have the ability to identify and measure current gaps in availability of broadband internet access on agricultural land. And the reason that's so important is, I mentioned earlier, right now, uh, a lot of conversations are concerned around your traditional anchor institutions, connecting hospitals, connecting schools, connecting Main Street, rural America. And those are critical, are everything that AFBF supports. But one discussion that has been overlooked is the connectivity where farmers' business takes place. And that's at the crop that's out in the fields. That's out at the ranches, at the dairies. And what this task force is going to help address are those needs, those specific needs concerning precision agriculture and the needs of farmers and ranchers. So what this task force uh, will achieve is uh, providing 95% coverage of broadband access by 2025. So it's going to be a six-year task force, uh, one that AFBF uh, is looking forward to uh, putting forward nominations to participate in. And uh, we look forward to working with the Federal Communications Commission, USDA, and the other members of uh, the task force if AFBF is selected uh, to represent farmers and ranchers. Um, It's going to be a vital importance uh, for the needs of precision agriculture. So folks listening here want their voices heard. What is the best way to go about uh, uh, voicing their opinions about rural broadband? Uh, The simplest thing to do right now is to contact your members of Congress and tell them your story on what broadband means to you, whether it be from your farming business operation or whether it be uh, from a from your the care you worry about for health care of your elderly parents. Possibly uh, you're looking at uh, educational services for your uh, for your students, your for your children. Uh, we've heard stories of our own young farmers and ranchers who have uh, school-aged children having to take their kids to the local uh, fast food restaurant to do their homework in a parking lot because there's no Wi-Fi connection at home, there's no broadband connectivity at home, the schools close, the library closes, so there's nowhere else for them to go other than to sit in the parking lot of the local fast food restaurant and complete their homework or do their research papers. So these are stories that are impactful for members of Congress. There's a lot of momentum behind rural broadband right now. It's being talked about more uh, than I've ever seen. It used to be number six on a list of five or number 11 on a list of 10. It is now one of the top priorities internally within the American Farm Bureau. I hear talked about more and more as a priority within members of Congress, within the administration, whenever an infrastructure bill is talked about now, whether it be at the White House or whether it be uh, from Republicans or Democrats in, in walking the halls of Congress, you consistently hear broadband as part of that discussion with regards to infrastructure. There's a lot to take home. There's a lot to hone in on. And there's a great wave of momentum behind this build-out. So we're, we're excited um, that we're trying to ride the, ride the wave, see something get finished, get something finished across the finish line, specifically in regards to mapping. Uh, that's, that's where we would... Uh, been focusing our attention, and there have been two bills that were introduced uh, with um, concerning and addressing the mapping issue. Uh, the first is in the House HR Bill 3162, 
which is the Broadband Data Improvement Act. And its companion bill in the Senate is Senate Bill Number 1522. Both of these are bipartisan bills that we hope uh, Congress will pass and we can get it to the president for signature. Well, RJ, we sure do appreciate uh, you taking the time to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track, and we appreciate your diligence in uh, working with Congress to, to move this forward. And, and certainly uh, to this end, we'd love to have you back to keep us updated on this and, and, and keep the message out there. Thanks for the time. Really appreciate speaking with you today. Well, that was R.J. Carney, the Director of Congressional Relations for the American Farm Bureau Federation. And you can check out more of their great work by going to fb.org. Back on Fast Line, Fast Track. I'm taking the show on the road today. I'm in Corden, Indiana, at the home of uh, the Old Town Store uh, with a, just a tremendous guy I've known for about a decade, Joe Poe. Joe is a picker, antiques dealer, and uh, very knowledgeable in uh, farm uh, collectibles, antiques, and so forth. So, uh, Joe, welcome to Fast Line, Fast Track. Uh, thanks, Brent. Thanks for having me, man. I'm glad you got to come check out the shop today. Man, uh, you know, Corden, Indiana holds a special place in my heart. Our radio partner, the first in America to uh, bring Fast Line, Fast Track to the air, WOCC, is about a block over from Joe. And Joe has just got a treasure trove of collectibles uh, from all different sorts of things. Uh, he's big into advertising, signage, uh, all kinds of uh, wh- whatever through the history of advertising you, you might think of. And yeah. just all kinds of quirky stuff, man. I, but the one thing that... Uh, really stands out and we were talking about uh, uh just, just you and i a few weeks ago offline was uh, just the uh, popularity of farm collectibles mm-hmm. and i know people you know we run into a lot of farmers who are third fourth fifth maybe even sixth generation farmers and uh, they, they just take over that family farm and somewhere there's a barn or two or three that's just packed full of uh, what, what some might call junk, but others see it as just treasures, and, and it's a huge business. And man, you uh, have really become an expert in this stuff. Oh, man, when I drive by those barns, uh, I, my mind always wonders, wonder what's in there, man. What's in that barn there? What have they been uh, hiding away for all those years? So um, every chance we can get to get in there and kind of see what might be in there that's of value. And, and a lot of times the family just has no clue. It's it's just tucked away. They've locked the doors, thrown away the key. A lot of times just stored grandma or grandpa's or great-grandma, great-grandpa's stuff in there for years. And um, many times just forget about it. You know, you just get caught up in life, farm work and that sort of thing. And just it's just another building on your property. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we love getting in those buildings and seeing what uh, a value might be in there. Sure. And sometimes there's sentimental uh attachments to it but a lot of times it's just a matter of they like you said they don't want to fool with it in this day and age when, when people are, are really looking for supplemental income uh t- times are tough times are tight man maybe it's time to look at uh, uh opening those doors and seeing what's there yeah what's cool is uh you know the people who grew up in that depression era man you know great grandma great grandpa you know or um you know they they just didn't throw things away man they they we grew up here in the midwest and it's like hey we might need that someday, you know, and, and a lot of times it's so cool to see, uh, of course they kept some stuff that we never, we care about today, but man, there's so many cool things that they just tucked back as they thought, Oh, I might need that someday. 
And and today it's just amazing what some of that stuff can bring mm-hmm. uh, when it when it's presented in the right market. Now your your brick and mortar shop is just a, a small piece of your uh, your total business. Uh, one of the things that I, I was reading and find fascinating just the other day is that the the online antiques and collectibles market is now in excess of a billion dollar market and uh, growing at about a six percent a year clip and it employs like twenty five thousand people. It's it's a huge booming business. Uh, yeah, I mean uh, it's obviously there's a lot of risk in the business just like with farming i mean uh it's a commodity so it can go up and down but but uh, definitely um uh it, it's fed my family uh for i've been full-time doing it for seven years been buying and selling on ebay for the last 18 years and been collecting pretty much my whole life with my dad so uh-huh. um yeah you're absolutely right it's a huge business it blows my mind um i, I watch some of the biggest auction houses in the united states and to see um, the kind of dollars that they're getting for some of these things that you might just have stashed away in the yeah. barn. It just blows my mind. Now, now uh, when you pick, uh, you go to a farm setting, you're actually looking at things not only from a collector's eye, but uh, you, you come from a farming background yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I grew up on pretty much like what we call a hobby farm. I mean, I think we had maybe, I don't know, the most we ever had about 100 cattle and, um, of course, baling hay and and cutting tobacco and and um it's kind of crazy nowadays i i grew up um milking cows and two of the farms i grew up they're actually closing now because of the dairy yeah kind of mm-hmm. issues but um it's it's crazy like um just growing up out of necessity on the farm and needing a lot of these things and now people are collecting a lot of the yeah, same things yeah i mean man. you know the farm collectibles the the, the the that whole decor couldn't be hotter than it is right now what are some of the most in demand items that people are looking for well um any anything i always say it's like gas station country store the old car dealership related stuff that stuff is just on fire right now um any old signage um you know the the big neon clocks you might have seen at the bowling alley when you were younger um Mm -hmm. you know uh literally any any type of advertising um Big, little, it doesn't really matter. Um, uh, I'm sitting here right now looking in the shop here. Got an old screen door off the front of the old country store. Man, people love those. I see the women, the designers now, they're putting those on pantries in their little farmhouses and and then put their groceries up on the shelf behind it. And it looks like you're walking into the old country store, man, when you open the door. So it's super cool. So a lot of this market is driven by by decorators, really, you know. And then also... um, you know, um, the car market, you know, guy gets a few cars or a few tractors in his barn. He collects the, you know, the green or the red tractors or, or whatnot. He wants the signs to go with them to hang up in there. So a lot of that. And then also, um, guys want the, you know, if I like Chevy's, I'm going to put Chevy signs up or a Ford, I'm going to put a Ford sign up. Uh, another hot item is of course, like gas pumps, man. Uh, everybody's really hot to try like gas pumps, Coke machines, um, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my area that I'm really into that vintage toys, um, Mm-hmm. But literally, um, that's just a small snippet. I mean, you yeah. got coins and currency and furniture and yeah. and you name it. I mean, there's just a huge gamut of stuff that people collect. Uh, sure. I mean, my wife collects um, uh, granite ware, you know, like the blue swirled granite ware and, and egg scales, you know, from the old farm. So yeah. uh, to weigh them out, make see what size they are. So. everybody collects something different, man. That's what cool kind of makes the world go around. So when you get into actual farm uh, uh, collectibles, 
and when you're looking at either equipment like antique or, or, or even primitive, uh, is there a lot of a market for that right now? Yeah. Or? So you're talking about like tractors yeah, and like yeah, the yeah, implements, implements and stuff like, like that. that. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. I mean, I just watched the other day. It was a old, um, you know, John Deere. Like I don't even know if it was a John Deere wagon of some sort. Man, brought brought. I don't know. It was and it was pretty rough. And it brought you know several over a thousand dollars. I think. I mean, it, just because uh-huh. it was a John Deere wagon, you know. So obviously, you put that name brand on it. I always compare it to um, when I was in school. Everybody wanted to have a Nike shoe. You know sure. what I mean? So if it didn't have that check on your shoe, uh, well, if it doesn't have the John Deere or the International Harvester or Oliver or, or Alice Chalmers, whatever it might be. You know, that little name means a lot. So um, when we we look at that, obviously, um, you know, some big auction companies rolling some big, uh, what they call um, hot rod tractors. Now you have your high croppers, all that stuff's bringing big money. And then, of course, um, a lot of those are restored, but um, you also have a market for the ones that are unrestored, ready to go. Another big market with a lot of that farm stuff, a lot of people like the hit and miss motors, a lot of that older, you know, generation hit and miss motors. I had a guy tell me a story one time about his grandma washing the clothes with a Maytag that had the uh, the little hit and miss motor on it, uh-huh. and, and grandpa would have to get up there and kick start it to get it going <laughs> and stuff and that sort of thing. So, you know, a lot of that stuff, man, people are one because it's just a, a snippet of history and yeah. and just engineering and the motors and that sort of thing. So, there's a lot of cool things going on like that. So, yeah, well, and I want to hit on something you, you mentioned earlier when you talk about uh, restored versus non restored. I think there's a lot of people that think, uh, well, this is just uh, you know, rusty, nobody's going to care for it. But, but honestly, a lot of the stuff that's been untouched and is still original uh, may, may wind up doing better for you than, than something you're going to take in a have store. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, we call them survivors. I mean, because, you know, it's especially if you find ones that have the original paint still on them, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be perfect, but man, they, a lot of guys would rather have that versus, and I even see those bringing more money at auction um, than, say, one that's been totally restored because it's all factory, you know. So um, and, the, and then, of course, you know, there's going to be ones that are used and, or, or, you know, uh, and, and put away wet. So I always say, you know, they rode hard and put up wet, uh, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, and yeah. so um, uh, and then, of course, uh, the one that's sitting out in the field or the sinkhole ain't going to be worth as much as the one that's sitting in the barn. You know, condition is everything yeah. when it comes to that, especially when it comes to the dollars and cents of what the value of it is. Um, if someone's going to have to invest um, another $5,000 to restore a tractor, that's going to be reflected in the price mm-hmm. of it versus when it's already restored. So so if I got a, a barn chock full of treasures or a shed or an attic or a basement or, or, or what may be but I don't even know where to go from there. What, what would you recommend to people? Well, I mean, there's obviously multiple different levels of ways that you can sell. I mean, um, and it also depends on like maybe what you have and what the quality is, that sort of thing. But, um, you know, obviously you can contact a local antique store, somebody like myself. Um, a lot of times we're always interested in buying to stock our stores. Um, you know, uh, my wife has her side of the store, which is mostly, um, like furniture and kind of farmhouse decor, like uh, maybe think fixer up or something like that, yeah. you know, on HGTV. Well, that stuff is really, yeah. I mean, it. you know, even like the old doors mm-hmm. and, and kind of, you know, a lot of times there's furniture, you know, you wouldn't think anybody and their brother would want. I mean, it's sitting in the barn, the paint's chipped off of it. Man, believe it or not, there's somebody out there that wants that yeah. looking just like that, like crazy paint chipping off of it and everything. Uh-huh. And um, 
sometimes that's hard for a lot of people to wrap their yeah. brains around. Like, well, who would want this piece yeah, of junk? Yeah, you know. So yeah. for me, um, I, I try to remind people that it's not you know just because you don't like it doesn't mean someone else won't like it. So um, that is a good way to do it. You can find somebody like us that just wants to get out and dig through your barn and buy some stuff. If you have an abundance, if you have a lot, if you think you have something that's of extreme value, I mean, obviously contacting a local auctioneer or just trying to figure out a value of your own nowadays with uh thing like obviously um i mean you could you want to list a tractor you can put it in a, a fast line or or you can put it in uh, online there i'm sure there's a market for the, even antique tractors on there and stuff so um or you can you know obviously throw it on uh, the internet for sale or contact a, a local auctioneer you know somebody if you have a nice collection obviously might be something um I just watched a local auctioneer sell a, a whole list of um, antique fishing lures the other day. I mean, it was like, you know, 500 antique fishing lures. Maybe you mm-hmm. got something like that laying around. Yeah. You know, something like that's good to, you know, put in an auction. And then, you know, it's going to take two guys want it. But, man, it'll really drive the price up on that a lot of times. So uh-huh. um, it's not a lot different than going to a new equipment auction or, or slightly pre-owned. It's just there's those guys that really want to collect those antique tractors or implements or pieces to just kind of complete their collection. And they like to show them off, obviously, go to the tractor shows and steam engine shows and different things like that to kind of show off some of the antique stuff. But, man, it's crazy. There's a lot of money just sitting around your barn a lot of times. It can help, you know, with just bills around the farm and stuff. And I think that's what's kind of cool about it. Yeah, well, I I know, you know, with the spring that a lot of folks have had they, they are looking for other ways to supplement income and uh, you know here, here's another way that, that could help you out uh, for folks who are interested in seeing what you put out there online how can they find you well um number one place you find us is like on instagram or facebook and and it's uh, uh the old town store is is my side of the store um and that's more of the collectibles um my wife, she, uh, we, it, hers is called Pose Vintage Goods, mm-hmm. and um, it's more of the decor, your furniture for the house, things that make your house look pretty. So I always say it's like his and hers. So. Yeah. Well, make sure you go check check him out. Uh, uh, the Old Town Store, based in Cordon, Indiana. His name is Joe Poe. <laughs> his wife, Lindsay, and uh, man. How much fun is it just to, because a large part of your business when you're not managing the, 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 the nuts and bolts of the business is actually getting out, getting your hands dirty, traveling the country, just picking through people's stuff, man. man How fun I, is that? Oh, it's, uh, I tell people like, I love treasure hunting, man, you know, and I got a little boy right now and we have a big creek behind our house where people like to dump stuff and he likes to get down there and dig and dig and see what he can treasure, he can bring home to dad and and see what he can find and it's always amazing it's usually a bottle or something simple but that's the kind of feeling i get man when i get to get out there and look and just it's it's like indiana jones or something man we're like uncovering some uh super cool treasure that's just been hidden covered in dust yeah and um it's it always uh, brings a little joy to my heart to be able to save that little piece of history and to um you know bring it on to a next generation um which which is a concern in our business is the next generation going to care about it so yeah. uh, now's a good time to sell now's a good time to to move stuff we know that this generation uh, there's still people in this generation that care about well, it. Well, and so. again, nostalgia drives so much of that, too. Oh, man, absolutely, absolutely. But, yeah, I love it, man. Can't get enough of it. That's excellent. Well, Joe, we sure appreciate you taking the time to join us on Fast Line Fast Track and, and describe your business. And uh, uh, we, we wish you the best of success with everything. Make sure you go check Joe out. And, uh, uh, again, if uh, if you're needing uh, some cash or if you're needing to uh, – 
uh, just uh, lighten your load a little bit. Go out and check out uh, check out that stash of treasures you got. You might uh, be able to, uh, to to make a nice little profit on it. Yeah, yeah. Even if it's just having a yard sale in the front yard, you know, get some people out, throw some stuff out there, see what happens. Maybe get some guys like me showing up buying some of those. Yeah, stuff. definitely. Well, brother, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah no doubt, man. We'll catch you on down the road. All right, Brent. Thank you. And now we take you to the legendary Ernest Tubb Record Shop in downtown Nashville, Tennessee, where Fastline Fast Track presents you with a taste of the future of country music, the Bennett Hall Band. It features three young sisters from the Nashville area who've caught the ear of many in the music industry. Just recently, they performed with musician and songwriter Mac McAnally and have graced the stages of Nashville's Station Inn and Kimbrough's Pickin' Parlor in Franklin, Tennessee. They also have a monthly residency at the Mellow Mushroom on Lower Broadway next to the Ernest Tubb Record Shop. Back on Fast Line Fast Track from the Midnight Jamboree's original home, the Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway, Nashville, Tennessee. And we've got a real special treat for you today. It's the Bennett Hall Band. Sisters Kat Presley and Josie Hope Hall. Uh, Josie uh, uh, opted not to sing today, but uh, you're going to get Kat and Presley, and they do an amazing job. Uh, If you're wondering about the name of their band, they were named after a brother who passed away in 2010. And so to honor his legacy, uh, they named their band after him, and and they give it all they've got every time out. Uh, uh, They play everything from Chris Stapleton to David Allen Coe, which I, I think we can probably talk them into doing a little bit later so we will uh we'll see what we can do there but they play country gospel classic rock uh they got on my radar last year as i was emceeing an event for the vet links organization in nashville and they sang boogie woogie bugle boy and just blew the crowd away on a freezing cold uh, november day in uh in nashville and uh, they continue to blow me away you can see a lot of their stuff on youtube and facebook and uh and we've got uh, Kat and Presley here. Guys, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you. We're glad to be here. So, uh, first of all, th- tell us your name and tell us your age. I'm Kat, and I'm 11. Uh-huh. And I'm Presley, and I'm 9. N- 11 and 9. And how long have you guys been playing music? We've been playing live together for about a year. Wow. And uh, how did you get started playing music? Well, when I was about five years old, I started singing, mm-hmm. and then we went to a different, we went around, and then I started taking piano lessons, and once I started taking piano lessons, Presley got really in- interested in the piano, mm-hmm. and so she went to my piano teacher, uh-huh. and then we just started doing harmonies together and things like that, and then we just started playing together live, live I Yeah, guess. yeah. And so how often do you guys practice? Well, we, we take music for an hour and a half, three times a week. So we do that. But then also when we practice, leading up to shows like almost every day of the week leading up to it and even before that. Gotcha. So when you first hear a song that you want to learn, how long does it usually take you guys to, to learn a song from scratch? Well, it depends on the song, maybe two days, three days-ish. Wow. Uh-huh. And you are the keyboard player. How, how long have you been playing the keys? Um, I've been playing keys for about three years. Awesome. And you've also taken up bass, is that right? Yes, sir. How's that going for you? It's going pretty good. Excellent. So, uh, if, if, again, if you check them out on YouTube, you'll see uh, her playing around with that bass. She just picked it up and, and was playing bass in no time. It's some definite musical ability here, some musical chops, and uh, we're so blessed to have them uh, with us. What, what, what kinds of music do you guys like to listen to? 
We like to listen to classic country music. Mm-hmm. Who are some of your favorite artists? Probably, we like Johnny Cash, Dolly Parton, David Allen Coe, any people like that. Uh-huh. You guys have a little, uh, a, a pretty standing gig down at the Mellow Mushroom, just a couple doors down from us here at the Ernest Tubb Record Shop on, on Broadway. Yes, sir, we do. Um, we go down there the last Sunday of every month to play a full set. Uh-huh. And how long does the full set last? Uh, one hour. Excellent. You guys have been packing them in down there. I've been seeing some of those videos. Yes, sir. And the crowd really gets into it, don't it? Yes, sir. So once, uh, once the crowd, how, how much does that help you guys once the crowd gets into it and puts a little energy into your performance? It, it definitely helps. It's amazing, like the different. Uh-huh. Yeah. So what are some of your hopes and dreams and goals with this music career? You guys are really starting to take off. Well, when we first started, our goal was really just to play the music and have fun. But now, since we've gotten to do some awesome things, like we got to play at Station M with 45 RPM, wow. which has some of the greatest session players of all time, which was such a privilege. We, get to, we've got, we had that monthly gig at Mellow Mushroom and things like that. We have bigger dreams, so I would say that our goals would be to record an EP as the Bennett Hall Band, mm-hmm. and to maybe play the Ryman on the, at the Ryman maybe before 20. Uh, there you go. If you're listening, <laughs> make sure you check it out. And uh, if folks want to check out your music, where can they go to, to, to see videos and hear your music? Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and YouTube. All right, so go search for the Bennett Hall Band on social media. Check them out. They are very active in posting uh, videos and, and audio of their performances and letting you in on, uh, on some of their rehearsals. You like that when you uh, put that out there and then people, people see kind of behind the scenes? Yes, sir. That's awesome. Well, and I love you guys to death, and I'm glad that you were able to come and join us here. And uh, you're playing in the same spot as uh, Ernest Tubb and, and Hank Williams and, and Johnny Cash and some of those legends. So it's really cool to see you guys shining up here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Hey, y'all. I'm Kat, and this is Presley. We're the Bennett Hall Band. And this first song we're going to do for y'all is called How Blue. It's by Reba McIntyre, and we hope y'all like it.
Thank you all. Well, this next song's a song by Billy Ray Cyrus, and it's one y'all should all know. So I expect to hear all y'all singing along. Another one, y'all should all know. Well, it was all that I could do to keep from crying.
guy named Steve Goodman wrote that song. And he told me it was the perfect country western song. Well, I wrote him back and told him it was not the perfect country western song. Because he hadn't said anything about mama. Or getting drunk. Well, he sat down, read another verse of this song, and sent it to me. And after reading it, I realized my friend had written the perfect country and western song. And I felt obliged to include it in this album. So the last verse goes like this here. I was drunk the day my mom got out of prison. Thank y'all. We're the Bennett Hall Band. And there you have it, the amazing talent of the Bennett Hall Band. Be sure to check them out at thebennetthallband.com. And harvest season will be here before you know it. If you're in the market for equipment, make sure you make your first stop, fastline.com. Check out the new look price comparison tool with the Iron Average, powered by Iron Solutions. Also, be sure to follow Fastline Fast Track on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Pinterest, and add our Spotify playlist to your library to hear music from past, current, and upcoming guests. Be sure to come back next time for another episode of Fast Line Fast Track, where we'll talk to more industry newsmakers and hear more great country music from their legendary Ernest Tubb record shop. And don't forget, bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group. To learn more about Fast Line's customer-focused marketing solutions, visit FastLineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites, FastLine.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at brent.adams at fastline.com. Something like that.